Hey folks, we have some exciting news to tell y'all about. The Bad Rolling Project has partnered with Expedition 44 and Rival Nations to start the one-of-a-kind No Key But Christ Network. This network will consist of content creators with the focus of Jesus is King and no other. For more information, visit nokeymutchristnetwork.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, today Shane Claiborne joins me on the show. My first time hearing Shane was on the Postcards from Babylon documentary. I started looking for more stuff from Shane because of a very important statement he made in the documentary when he said, in reference to the early church, when they said Jesus is Lord, that meant Caesar is not. And the whole time I was learning more about Shane, I began to realize that I may not be the biggest critic of Donald Trump as a Christian. And we're going to talk about Christian nationalism and compare that to how the early church behaved in regards to the state. Right. We'd rather serve God than serve right. Caesar, you know me? Right. I'm just trying to live what he said. I'm just trying to live what he said. I ain't scared. I will take one to the head. Go ahead. So it's safe to say that I'm bad. So it's safe to say that I'm bad. So it's safe to say that I'm bad. Shane, how you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me, brother. Yeah, it was cool. I'm, I'm happy you're here. Why don't you give us a little background of yourself and then we'll... Uh, We'll go from there. Yeah, man. I grew up down in Tennessee. I'm a Southern boy. Grew up in the Bible Belt. Fell in love with Jesus. And uh, I guess the more I fell in love with Jesus, the more contradictions I saw in myself and in church, you know. (laughs) I always like it when people tell me all the things that, you know, oh, I was such a mess. And then I met Jesus and everything came together. And I'm like, man, I was pretty together. Met Jesus. He messed me up. You know, I was. Uh, so I, I, uh, you know, saw Jesus saying, if you want to be the greatest, become the least and, uh, Jesus saying, love your enemies. And, you know, so a lot of those things challenged me, uh, sell what you have and give it to the poor. So I kept leaning in though. And I heard a pastor say, if we find ourselves climb, climbing the ladder of upward mobility, we better be careful or else on our way up, we might pass Jesus on his way down. You know, the whole story is about God joining the struggle with folks here on earth. And so I, I ended up going to, to Philly and uh, studied sociology and studied the Bible. And while I was doing my undergrad work, that's when our community started. We had a group of homeless families, mostly mothers and children that had uh, moved into an old abandoned Catholic church building. And uh, they started living there and then they got an eviction notice from the Catholic church. So we organized a little solidarity movement because something didn't feel right about that, you know, and they hung a banner that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? (laughs) So, yeah, so I've been up there for 25 years, man. Uh, Our little community, the simple ways on the North side of Philly, we've been building a little village. Uh, We got, you know, abandoned houses we're fixing up community gardens and, um, uh, murals that we've painted and we're right now it's just incredible seeing all my friends and neighbors stepping up in the pandemic you know we're a coronavirus testing site we're delivering bags to seniors so that's my little uh community uh that is is uh 
been there for a little while, man. So I, I live right outside of Memphis. I don't know if you've ever been on this side of Tennessee, but this is where I live right now. I'm originally from Texas and then moved to Arkansas, and then now I'm in Tennessee for a new job. But I don't know if you've been on the side of the state or not. Yeah, I've been out there. Uh, good barbecue and whatnot, you know, and been to the Lorraine Hotel where Dr. King was killed. I've done a lot of uh, stuff with folks on death row in Tennessee. So some of them are from Memphis. And yeah, that's our state, though, ain't it? Well, <laughs> I'm a misplaced Texan, so we're just going to, but <laughs> yeah, that's my state right now. It's where I'm living at right now. I really enjoy Tennessee. Um, this area is interesting because it seems like, and I want to get to like the east side of Tennessee at some point because it seems to be like it's a lot prettier country out that way. Well, we got the Smoky Mountains. You know, I remember my uncle when Dolly Parton was winning uh, her award, uh, one, one of the I don't know, one of the big awards she won. He said, I remember when she used to play on the front porch. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, that's, that's my folks. And I, you know, I, I came to I just embrace a lot of what I grew up with and, uh, spit out the bones and try to, you know, do some work around the other stuff. Um, we still, you know, we still have, uh, a lot of the residue of slavery and racism that, you know, I, I didn't really have eyes to see some of that growing up, but my, my high school, Maryville high school was the rebels, you know, we had the Confederate flag on everything. And we, you know, still to this day have a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the Capitol, who was, you know, the founder of the KKK. So, uh, yeah, the that that's all, all the I fell in love with God and also the funk, uh, you know, was still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned to you before we started recording that um, when we started this project back in March of 2020, well, well, we started before then, but when we first started releasing episodes, we were our producer, she was like, just start recording stuff. We can get get ahead of, you know, the game. And especially with my work schedule, we'll be able to commit, keep our commitments every two weeks to release an episode. And, but she told me about you back when we started and I, I forgot about it. And then as, as time went on, then I heard about you in the postcard or heard you in the postcards from Babylon documentary. Yeah. And I text her, I was like, Hey, I want to get this guy on the show. He said something really important. that's going to resonate with, you know, what we talk about on this show quite a bit. And she goes, I told you about him way back in the beginning. And then you know, like a light bulb went off. I said, Oh, I remember that now. But when I mentioned her, she said on the Young Bean podcast with Krista Tippett. Um, yeah, dude. I did. I listened to that. So it's, I don't know. There's several years ago. You said you've been on with her, you know, a few more times, but I think this was back in 2007, maybe. Okay, cool. So it's, it's been a few years back, but you mentioned in this uh, episode, you said that you were on the, the Bush Quell, or you worked on the Bush Quell campaign, and you met Dan Quell. Is that is that where you started getting in involved with politics, or was it was it did it happen prior to that? Well, I was in I was in high school, you know, back then, and uh, very passionate about my beliefs. I've I've always been passionate, even when I've been wrong or whatever. You know, I've, I've always felt to fire my bones. So. In the in back in the nineteen nineties, back in the nineteen hundreds, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, we were organizing the "See You at the Pole" campaign, you know, to uh, keep prayer in the schools. We were organizing around abortion and um, slapping Bush Quail stickers on cars. So I, I mean, I wasn't really official. I was just uh, passionate about all that, you know. And and I, you know, I grew up with a certain framework politically that uh, you know was about. We, we use the language pro-life, but I came to see that, you know, a lot of us say we're pro-life, but we'd more accurate 
we'd be more accurate to say we're pro-birth or anti-abortion, you know, because we're fighting abortion, but we're kind of on the wrong side of life on a lot of the other issues. So gun violence, the death penalty, war, uh, you know, the environment, so many other things have become real passions of mine. And because uh, I, I want to be for life, uh, you know, life after death as much as life before, before life, life after birth, not just life before birth. Right. And I, 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 I agree with that. I used to be the same way too. I was, that was how I started getting into politics was because of my stance on abortion. That's the reason I started voting was, was because of abortion. I didn't know anything else about what was going on, but, the, but I didn't, I didn't equate the two like, well, we shouldn't be in other countries dropping bombs on people too. That's, you know, we need to be pro-life in that way too. Ending these wars, we need to be pro-life and ending the death penalty, you know, and all that stuff. So, but I was, I was just that one issue guy, just the abortion. So I really understand what you, what you mean by that. Yeah, there, and there's a lot of folks that are connecting the dots on this, this stuff. You know, I mean, it, for some, some traditions, the, the consistent life ethic is something that they, you know, have in their DNA. But I think for a lot of other po- people, we've seen these as isolated issues, you know, and. um but uh, to yeah, to me, uh, to be for life is to care about immigration, is to care about racial justice. It's uh, and and particularly, I saw that on gun violence and the death penalty, Christians um, are the obstacles, right? Like we're the the highest owning gun uh, gun owning demographic in America. We're the biggest supporters of the death penalty. Uh, so. Uh, that that that's why I wrote my last two books on that, and I'm I'm writing a book now about the consistent life ethic. Okay, cool. So after you got out of high school and you after the being working on that campaign, where did you go from there? I mean, did you keep working on other campaigns, or you just kind of? I mean, I know where you're at now, but I mean, there's what where's the gap? Like in the in between, where were you at that kind of led you where you are now? Yeah, man. I, so I I began to really connect my faith to the stuff going on around, you know, in this world. And I, I, I can remember, uh, you know, in college hearing the words of Karl Barth, one of the great thinkers of the church, he said, we got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to hold the newspaper in the other so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world we live in. But, you know, when you look at Jesus, he was talking about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, not just something we go up to when we die, but something we bring down while we're, we're alive. So that, that theology really shaped me. And then um, I studied the Bible and I also studied sociology. So that's where I began to really deconstruct some of my ideas, you know, around race and violence and things like that. And, uh, and of course, you know, while we're in undergrad having this real galvanizing experience with this struggle of homeless families kind of made all of this real, you know, like put a name and a face on the injustice. And so that's all, you know, kind of what shaped who I am right now. That's cool. I like that. Hey folks, Craig here. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to play an ad and this is new ground for the bad woman project that we're super excited about. So here's the ad. Here it goes. Blockchain trading company, purveyors of fine digital assets since 2021. Blockchain trading company aims to be the leading decentralized autonomous organization in decentralized finance by establishing ourselves in company with one another as purveyors of fine digital assets. 
Join our primary community in Discord where our ever-growing arsenal of tools are readily available to equip you in the brave new world of all things blockchain. See you in the metaverse. So I want to get, I want to talk some about Christian nationalism because I've, you've been very outspoken about this and it's something that we, we, we addressed quite a bit on this show as well too. And it was really something that kind of spurred our, our, uh, our project. Was, well, there were several things leading up to our project that kind of got it going. This is one of them because, and just, I don't know how familiar you, familiar you are with me, but you know a little bit about our project, but. Leading up to 2016, I was a card-carrying neocon. I was a, uh, I voted straight Republican ticket all the time. Then Donald Trump got nominated. I couldn't get on board with this guy. There was something. I just there was something completely wrong with what was going on, and I saw it almost as a worship type of this man. You know, we saw it some with Obama, and I remember when when Obama was was elected, I saw it some. But man, it seems like Trump supporters took it to a whole different level. And it didn't stop. It didn't end even after he lost the election to Biden. It was, uh, I still, I still have QAnon folks on my, on my Facebook page and stuff. And it's just, the, the mindset is just mind blowing to me. But where, where's this coming from? Because it's, it's, and it's, and I'm seeing Christians behave this way too. It's not just your average voter. I'm talking about, I, this is what we talk about on our show is the Christian aspect of it, how they're so entangled with this, to use the words of Keith Giles, entangled with the state and so, I don't know what the right word is to, to, to describe it, but it's just how they're behaving. And I saw it in family and friends too. They're like, they're leaning on this guy. Like he's the savior. I've heard him compare him to Jesus Christ, you know, and that's scary. That's such a dangerous mindset to have because you don't know what a person can do with something like that, you know? And it's just, I don't know. Where's this coming from? I mean, cause like I said, we saw it some with Obama, but it's on a different level with Trump. Well, there's a th- few things that have surfaced during the last, you know, few years uh, when Trump was president. And, uh, you know, I've, I've said often uh, that uh, Trump didn't change America. He revealed America. And the same is true of the of the Christian church. I mean, especially evangelicalism. Trump, Trump didn't change it. He just surfaced it, revealed it, you know. And, and I think a lot of the things that we're seeing are really troubling that uh, a lot of uh, white Christians in particular, I mean, this was the base. You know, I think it's important to differentiate between the, the race fault line uh, around this is we focus sometimes on the 81%, you know, of white evangelicals that supported Trump. But when you look outside of white evangelicalism, the opposite's true. Uh, people of color were the biggest uh, uh, opponents of Trump's rhetoric and policies. Black women, you know, particularly were the kind of moral conscience. And so, and many of them deeply committed to their faith. So there's there's uh, what, what's become apparent, I think, is that a lot of white Christians have been shaped more by whiteness than by Christ. Um, and if you kind of look at our history, you, you begin to see that, man, we use the Bible to justify slavery. You know, my friend John and Wilson Hartgrove wrote a great book, Slaveholder Religion, about, you know, this this kind of whole uh, thing. There's a lot of other, you know, great books that have been on that. But Frederick Douglass said it really well. You know, he said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. (laughs) You know, he said, and to receive one as good, pure, and holy, it is a necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. And then Frederick Douglass said, I love the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore... Uh, hate the corrupt, slave-holding, 
women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypo- hypocritical Christianity of this land. And so I, you know, I, I think there's two different narratives, you know, maybe more than that, but about, about what Christianity is about. And, you know, the word Christian means Christ-like. Uh, but, boy, you couldn't come up with a bigger antithesis, I think, of the Beatitudes than what we saw in Donald Trump. I mean, you know, literally Jesus in the Beatitudes blesses the poor, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, you know, the uh, those who mourn, the peacemakers. So, And those are the things that were just crushed and cursed by the last administration, you know, um, and and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you get the real sense that the gospel of Jesus looks very different from the rhetoric of Trump, you know, the policies of Trump. Um, and uh, so, you know, there, there came a moment where a lot of uh, Christians, I think, um, uh, forfeited their moral authority. They forfeited their uh, credibility in order to for, you know, political expediency. I think, you know, for a few sets, uh, seats on the Supreme Court, <laughs> you know, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss for a few pieces of silver. And we, uh, you know, a lot of evangelicals betrayed Jesus with a kiss uh, for a couple seats on the Supreme Court. But, you know, it's done tremendous damage. And I think, you know, the, the litmus test for everything, for those of us that are Christians is does it look like Jesus? Does it sound like Jesus? Does it pass the sniff test? You know, like, is this Christ-like? Um, and, you know, when, when it comes to some of these issues like immigration, I mean, welcoming the stranger, that's not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. That's a Jesus thing. Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. When you don't welcome the stranger, you don't welcome me. So I think we've got to allow the imagination, the 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 things that Jesus said to shape who we are. And uh, a lot of times it's been more Fox News or a political party that's shaping our imagination than the gospel. Yeah, I, uh, that's that was one of my frustrations leading up to the, the election, because it wasn't so much. Politics are ugly anyway. I don't care what side you're on, Democrat, Republican. It's nasty. They're 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 mean to each other constantly and they, they talk trash about each other constantly. But it was my what what. And I don't know if I was just naive to it prior to 2016 or if I wasn't noticing or if it was just on a different level, but leading up to 2016 and how Christians were just falling all over themselves for Donald Trump. And it was like I said, this is to me, I, I try to separate like the Christian and non-Christian when it comes to politics, because Christians aren't supposed to be entangled with that stuff anyway. But when they get entangled with it and they're getting involved with somebody that you can you can see clearly is not Christ-like and how he's behaving, how he's treating. You brought up immigration. Immigration is another thing. I've heard some ugly words come out of people's mouths. Like they'd love to go down to the border and get ready to shoot people trying to cross the border. That's, and these are Christians speaking, you know, because I think they're defending their their country that way. But it's like you said, as Jesus, that we're supposed to bring those strangers in and feed them and clothe them. And I used to be on that side. Now, I never went to the extreme to, I'm going to go down to the border and and start waiting to pop them off as soon as they cross the border. That wasn't my idea, but I was against them coming across the border because that was just how I thought, how I believed. But learning more about how Christ would have treated a stranger compared to how Donald Trump is treating a stranger, that's when I never understood how Christians were getting all falling all over themselves. And like you said, Supreme Court picks. I heard that that nonsense quite a bit too. 
Yeah, well, it's it's this infatuation with power, right? And I also think that it's important that Donald Trump didn't come out of nowhere, and he's gone now. But the conditions that led to Donald Trump, we still have to reckon with. You know, like he didn't come out of left field. This has been building, and you know, so it's really important that um, you know, as we think about the conditions that led up to Donald Trump. I mean, our country is changing. You know, the demographics are changing. Uh, people talk about replacement. You know, white folks are being replaced. There's this grappling for power. Uh, white folks that have kind of held the reins of power, I think, are seeing Congress change. They're seeing our country change. And there's this fear and fragility, anxiety, this nostalgia of how things used to be. And so that take America back, you know, that when, when people say make America great again, many of them are saying make America white again. And they're very explicit about that, as you know, you know. So I think there's there's kind of this, um, you know, it needs to be said that on the back of the first black president, uh, as the Black Lives Matter movement sweeping our country, you see this white lash, you know, this backlash. And that's happened, you know, throughout history. Whenever black folks have made progress, there's this uprising of, you know, white power against that uh, to push that back. So, um and, and I think really at war in a lot of this is um, what the scripture says, you know, perfect love casteth out fear. And I think fear and love are like opposing magnets, you know, and they can't occupy the same space. Fear doesn't make much room for love and love doesn't make much room for fear. So we really are at a crossroads where we've got to choose. And the question for me is kind of what would America look like if love rather than fear were compelling our policies and shaping our minds on a lot of these things, because whether it's guns or immigration, I think a lot of what's motivating us is, is fear rather than love. And part of why I am concerned about politics um, is because I think loving our neighbor as ourselves requires caring about the policies that affect their lives. You know, we can't just ignore the things that either can allow someone to flourish or really squash uh, their, their possibilities. Right. And now you're familiar with Braxton Cavey, right? Yeah. He's a great friend of mine. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I've had him on, well, we published one episode with him and in that first one, and I've recorded with him again, but he said as, as Christians, the state's going to do state stuff. Don't worry about what the state's doing. He said, but as Christians, we're going to have very strong opinions about what the state's doing. He said, but it's not my thing. It's a thing, but it's not my thing. And when he said that to me, it's, it's it's something stuck in the back of my head constantly with all this. Like, even as anarchists, we have very strong opinions about the state, but it's not something we're going to participate in as far as trying to advance the state. So I try to say that to everybody that I come across with, you know, as, especially Christians. You know, it's a thing, but it's not our thing. We belong to a whole different kingdom that's not of this world. You know, and Jesus didn't use political power to try to advance his message. And so I, that's the way I think we should behave in, 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 in judging how the early church. I can't imagine if somebody like Tertullian or Orjon or Polycarp walked into a, a Southern Baptist church today, what they would see and how they would react to They wouldn't recognize it as a church, I don't think. You know, this is what I would say on that is I, I think that um, we, as, as Jesus said, we're to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And I think that we, the way that we engage politics is, uh, is challenging because uh, the, the big temptation in political engagement is to misplace your hope. 
right? And to put it in a person or a party that this person's going to change everything, you know, and people did that. Some folks were vulnerable to that with Obama. I can remember when the pictures came up and they had the word hope under Obama's picture, you know, and for Christians, we say like, no, you know, our, the old hymn is our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, blood and righteousness. You know, all other ground is sinking sand. My hope is not in the donkey of the Democrats or the, you know, elephant of the Republicans. My hope's in the Lamb of God. You know, uh, that that's what the early Christians were saying when they said, you know, Jesus is Lord, is Caesar is not. But this is one of, one of the things I, w- I would uh, offer to you, though, man, is I've come to see that opting out also has consequences, you know, and rather than seeing like I'm voting for this person because I think they're they're my hope for anything changing. We can actually do some damage control. <laughs> you know, we can do some harm reduction. And so, you know, I part of how I think of voting is I'm voting for the people that Jesus blessed. So what does it mean to vote for the poor? What does it mean to vote for the immigrants and refugees? What does it mean to vote for those who are incarcerated, those who are marginalized? And um, to see voting not just as one, something we do once every four years but ever, or two years, but something we do every day with our lives. And, and you know, we don't confine, com, uh, confine our voice to a ballot box like we want to. Uh, we we want to transform the world every day. We don't just wait, you know, every four years to do that. So I think that that kind of citizenship, but bringing the kingdom of God, I think it means transforming um, systems and structures too. Uh, for instance, you think of the you know the civil rights movement, and you needed God to change hearts. You can't legislate love. No law can change a racist heart. But we also needed our society to shift so that folks, black folks and white folks could swim in the same swimming pools, you know, so that folks could go to the same schools. So I think that those systems and structures do need to change. And it's not, you know, it's not an either or, you know, God's healing racist hearts. But as uh, Martin Luther King said, no law can make you love me, but it can sure make it harder for you to kill me. So we need better policies and we also need God to heal hearts. Right. I think my only pushback is, is I have not, I have not seen anybody come across a ballot in in my lifetime that that would do any of that. What you just said, that you know, we're still seeing even with Biden today, and we're seeing we're seeing immigration. Nothing's changed down there. You know, they're still locking kids in cages, and they're even talking about finishing the wall down there. You know, well, we I had a I hosted a conversation last night on immigration with uh, my two of my friends, Alexia Salvatierra, who's doing work on the border there, and. Uh, Jenny Yang, uh, who's working on, on the refugee ceiling. And um, I, I think that there are things that are really different. Like there were 400 restricted laws on immigration under Trump that they're working through that. Uh, I, I'm very disappointed with the pace at which it's going. I'm, you know, I think that, that not we're, we're looking to have the least amount of refugees and asylum seekers that we've had of, under any modern president under Biden. So all that's problematic. You know, um, he raised the war budget. I mean, these are these are so I'm not partisan for sure. Um, but I do think that there are things that um, we can shift and make happen now. And um, like I've been working closely on the death penalty and sometimes the death penalty comes down to one person or two people, like in the state of Tennessee, right? The governor is still using the electric chair and then tweeting Bible verses like that. To me, that's a problem, right? <laughs> um, but the, the governor has the power of life and death. So one of the ways of thinking about um, who we vote for for governor can be like, 
I'm voting to abolish the death penalty. It's not the only thing that I'm voting for, but the governor sh- certainly has a major play in that. Um, yeah, but like, like I think that 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 we want to use everything at our, uh, you know, that we can to try to uh, do that harm reduction. You know, to harness the principalities and powers. So uh, we we sure saw some of the worst principalities and powers unleashed in our country under Donald Trump. And uh, I mean, I remember when he got elected, the kids in my neighborhood, my wife was teaching elementary school and she asked some of the kids, what do you think about this? And, and the kids in our neighborhood said, are we going to become slaves again? One of them said, am I going to have to go back to Puerto Rico with my family? Another one said, is my Muslim friend going to be able to stay in this country? Those were the things that they're hearing. These are like 11 year old kids, you know? So I think that um, those in power can... Um, you know, the, 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 they, they can do tremendous damage and it's our job uh, to advocate for those that get squashed. Yeah. I just, I just take it a different route and not work through the state. I mean, I just, I, I, from what my understanding with the Christians, they always worked on the fringes of society instead of trying to work within the, the structure of political power. Oh, brother, I'm with, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't think this is an either or, you know, just as I don't believe that, that, uh, People, I, I don't think Christians exist in a hundred percent Christian or a hundred percent non-Christian. You know, I think there's folks that say they're Christian that seem to be looking less and less like Jesus, and there's other folks that, you know, have rejected a version of Christianity that seem to love Jesus a lot. And I, you know, I think the same, you know, with politics is that uh, I'm very passionate about being nonpartisan. Um, well, I love what I've seen you. I've seen some of your videos when you're out, especially with the death penalty is concerned, when you're out there and you're protesting this stuff. And I think we should be protesting this stuff every day. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm sitting back, not doing anything. You know, I'm just or what people working on this project, because I think what we're doing with this project, we're reaching people with it, trying to get them to understand where we're supposed to be as Christians. You know, you start with the Christians and everything kind of comes together, in my opinion. Yeah. And I look at what's happening in Georgia and I think things are, I tell you what, man, like one of the things that shifted for me is when I was in uh, a community where it's not all white folks, you know, and where for black folks and other people of color, like um, some of the historic changes that we've seen um, have involved one strategy of political change, like Dr. King did. And he went to jail for it. They died for it. Right. And, uh, so they talk about voting with with tears in their eyes, you know, and I, I do believe that the church is a primary instrument for God transforming the world. Um, I also believe that uh, God's redeeming all things, you know, and that systems and structures need to change so that they um, they, they make make it easier for life to flourish. You know, I, I j- just as we try to have good laws around cars, you know, and protect people, you know, speed limits. If you misuse your license, you lose it, you know, like all that stuff's good. You know, um, I think we need the same thing around guns and some other things. So, yeah. Uh, but, but uh, all that comes from me. It's fueled by Jesus. Jesus creates my political imagination. Um, when I think of welcoming the immigrants and refugees, like, I, I think it, we, you know, we're doing this to Jesus and, and w- whether or not like Matthew 25, you know, Jesus says we're all going to be judged and we're going to be asked when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in need of health care, did you give it to me? And um, politicians are not going to be exempt from that. You know, they're, they're going to have to ask that question. Nations are going to be judged based on how not how the stock exchange was doing, but how the poor and most vulnerable are doing. That's the litmus test. Hey folks, Craig here again. 
If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, the first 15 folks to sign up for four ad spots with us will get a fifth spot for free. You can also support our mission by donating on our site. I'm so happy how this project has grown, and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. All right, let's say, do you want to speak anything to the early church and compare them to how the how compared to the Christian nationalism we see today? I, I kind of want to get to what how you view the two. I mean, I've got my own perspective. What what I saw with the early what I see with the early church and reading up on them, but from what you, like I said, the reason I want to get you on because what I heard you say in that in that documentary, and so I'm kind of curious at how you see the two compare them. I'm sure we agree both both that they they don't compare to each other. That's not how the early church, but I'm really kind of curious how you see the early church as far as nationalism is concerned. And I'm talking about prior to Constantine. This is when I, when I, when I, when I say early church, I'm talking about like the first 400 years prior to Constantine. Yeah. So we, we wrestled with this. uh, It was like, I think it was 2012. We wrote a book called Jesus for president and really wrestling with the political imagination of the early church. And uh, man, I mean, what's really clear to me is that they had a different political imagination for how the world's going to change, you know, and they were accused of insurrection. Uh, they were called atheists because they had come to not believe in the deity of Rome. Like they they were, you know, killed for that. Um, even in the book of Acts, in the Bible, it says uh, these people are disrupting the empire. They are claiming uh, uh, that there is another emperor, one named Jesus. It says that in the book of Acts, you know, so they uh, all so much of the language even that Jesus uses ripped from the imperial lexicon. You know, I mean, his life is a political satire as he's, you know, we remembered at Easter, his his execution on the cross directly mirrored Caesar's ascension to power. Even the crown, which was, for him was thorns, you know, his throne was a cross. And so, but all of that was a, a parody of the power, riding a donkey into his inauguration, you know, into Passover. I mean, these were the palm, palm branches that we wave on Palm Sunday. They were a fist in the air to the Roman emperor. They were, they even, historians found palm branches actually engraved into the walls of the empire. So there is a revolutionary spirit about that, that Jesus is challenging the violent expressions of that, that we see in the Sicarii and the Zealots and some of that, you know, when Peter picks up his sword even and cuts a guy's ear off, Jesus scolds him. So he's teaching them the nonviolent revolution. But it, but let, let's not miss the that it was a revolutionary call. You know, he was bringing the kingdom in a way that they may have not, I think it debunked the messianic expectation that we're going to come and have a holy war that's going to overthrow Rome. But, you know, instead of killing, Jesus dies and exposes the principalities and powers. So, I mean, that's that's uh, at the very heart of our gospel is Jesus absorbing all of the violence that the state is capable of and subverting it with love and forgiveness in an empty tomb. Uh, so, I mean, that that's that that should change us. I mean, if anybody should be suspicious of state power, it should be Christians who worship an executed and risen Savior. Uh, so, you know, and, and these, these were questions for the, the early Christians when they were getting baptized was, well, what if I work for the state? And there were certain vocations that they deemed irreconcilable with being a Christian. And so when you were baptized, um I mean, they named a few of them, which would make sense to us. Like if you work in the brothels, you need to rethink the job. You know, and we'd say that if you work in a porn shop and you become a Christian, like you got to find something new to do, you know. And so 
but we don't necessarily extend that kind of theology or idea to other things, which the early Christians, they said, if you work in the gladiatorial games, you, you need to rethink your job. If you wear the purple robe of the magistrate, and you have to carry out executions. Like you can't do that. Like in the military, you can't fight and combat and kill people. Like Jesus said, love your enemies. That means we can't kill them. So all of those things. And so I think even today, we've got to think through that. You know, how do I realign my life in light of Jesus and the things that he said? And some of our careers may be incompatible with that. Or, you know, for some folks being a, a, a good Christian is going to make them a bad soldier or a bad Roman. Right. So I think that's, you know, that's definitely um, a part of the, the movement. But one of the other things I'll say is that the early Christians had a consistent ethic of life. I've got uh, the book I'm writing now. I'm using some of the early the writings of the early Christians, and they talked about abortion. They talked about uh, execution. They talked about uh, war combat, um, and they talked about uh, the expressions of violence and kind of our fetish with violence and the gladiatorial games and all that. They were consistently against all violence. And it was that radical ethic of life and love that was uh, fueling them. You just reminded me of what I forgot. I was trying to try to remember to say, which was Melissa T. So, yeah, man, say it. Because you said earlier, you said that uh, the Bible can be used to justify slavery. The Bible can be, has been used to justify a lot of horrible things. And it, it always brings to mind whenever... Uh, Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the father. And there's nothing about the life of Jesus that, that said that that said he was OK with slavery or murder or war, you know, or or uh, illegal or, or fighting immigration. There's nothing about it. And you you were just talking about the early church, too. There's trying to justify how how we live as Christians that go against the teachings of Christ. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know how we why we can't recognize that as Christians as a whole. I'm talking about no, there's. There's folks like me and you, you know, when people work on a project, they understand it. But I'm talking about overall Christianity, man. It's just it's mind blowing to me how they can't see it. Yeah. The, the you know, Gandhi was asked about Christianity and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the, or, the organization that I'm leading now uh, uh, or helping lead is called Red Letter Christians. It comes from the Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. And what we believe, you know, is that. Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible rather than what is often the case. People interpret Jesus and misconstrue Jesus in light of something that's in the Hebrew scripture or something that Paul wrote. And Jesus actually is the lens through which we're understanding the, the Hebrew scripture. We were reading Paul. And it, I, I mean, I think the whole Bible is the word of God. It's just like, but you hear, you know, one thing that seems like it's at odds with something else. And Jesus is the referee and all that, you know, so even even Moses, when he said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, uh, when it says that in the Hebrew scripture, like it was one version of justice that said you can do reciprocal harm. You can hurt someone as much as they've hurt you. And we've kind of used that as a license for revenge. And it was the opposite. It was to try to keep people from hurting each other and spiraling the violence. So then when Jesus says, you've heard it said, Moses told you this, I tell you this, you know, he's kind of not negating that, but fulfilling it and showing you, you may have a right to hurt them back, but that doesn't mean it's the best we could do. Like don't even mirror the evil that was done to you. And that's where I think Jesus is the radical fulfillment of this. And also the lens through which we're interpreting, you know, how we're to live in the world, things like the death penalty and, and, um, whether we need guns to protect us and all that stuff. You know, I think that's, that's all got to be asked through, 
the lens of Jesus. And, and so, um, yeah, that, that's, that's my, my interpretation. And, you know, the, the fancy folks would say a Christ centered, um, uh, you know, way of, of, you know, it's, it's that kind of way of reading scripture and reading the world in light of Jesus. I like you, you kind of segued into something else I want to talk about. And you, and then, and then there's one more thing that I want to discuss and I'll let you get out of here, but the, uh, the, the, owning a weapon to defend ourselves, and y'all are doing something that's kind of cool to me. I, I still own a pistol, but I don't use it. I don't have it to like, I'm going to use it to defend myself. I like to shoot guns. Yeah. I like to target, you know, target practice, but I like that. This is kind of cool to me. Y'all are taking pistols or you're taking weapons and you're turning them into garden tools. Yeah. So we're, we've been inspired by the, the prophets, you know, Mike and Isaiah talk about beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. And, uh, um, we don't have a lot of, swords in America, but we got, you know, more guns than people. And so we invited people, you know, just if you want to, to donate guns. And, and we started about 10 years ago, uh, transforming guns into garden tools. And I know most of you people are, uh, listening, not watching, but you know, we got these, these shovels like this one, and we even make the wood handles out of the gun stock. And I've been making, you know, the crosses cause That's cool. we always say the cross and the gun give you these two different versions of power. One says I'm willing to kill and the other says I'm willing to die. So I love to transform a, a barrel of a gun into a, a cross. And well, I, was re- I was really kind of curious what something would look like. I'm glad you showed me that because I didn't know, I know what, I, I know what pistol I have. And I was like, how can he turn something like that into a shovel? <laughs> because it does to me. So- yeah. Well, some of these would make these little hearts too. Some of these are made out of pistol barrels that we slice up and uh, make them into earrings or necklaces. But I mean, also it's not just the symbolism, but part of what we, why we started doing this is because we knew so many people were, impacted by gun violence and we wanted to amplify those stories so almost all of these gun transformations we have people that have lost their loved ones to suicide or homicide and mass shootings and um you know that proximity makes all the difference um and and you know there's people that that say well this is not a gun problem it's a heart problem and that's where i would go back and say it's both you know god heals hearts and people change laws. And I think we need both. You know, we, we really need uh, to address the heart issue. But we also need to have things like, man, we don't have grenades on our streets. We don't need weapons that are designed of war, you know, that are designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. You don't need an AR-15 to shoot a deer, you know. So I think that those are those are like the kind of things that Christians, you know, as we're shaped by the imagination of Jesus, um, it should cause us to care about protecting life. And, you know, a lot of times in America, we've been better at protecting guns than people. It reminds me of something, somebody's, especially when you go back to like the American Revolution, they were like, I've, I've had so many Christians tell me, well, they were being guided by by Christ and the words of Christ. It's like, no, they weren't. And there was a time when I would have believed that. But if, if we were going to be honest about it, if they were being guided by the words of Christ, they would have never took up arms against England. Well, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine America without guns. I mean, we, you know, you, how do you build a country on stolen land with stolen labor without the, 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 those kinds of weapons? You know, and so, you know, it's, it's all bound up together. These are some of our original sins that go all the way back to Cain and Abel, you know, as a brother killing a brother. And, and God said the blood cried out to God from the ground, you know, like like that. And I think that that this violence that we we continue to do, God feels it. God knows it. And uh, and so should we. 
All right. One last thing. I want you to tell me a little bit about the simple way. You mentioned red letter Christians. I love what you guys are doing with that. But the simple way, when I first heard about it, and I don't know a lot about it, but I know just enough. It almost sounds like it's something when we try to describe what a voluntary society would look like when we're interacting with each other peacefully without any kind of state intervention. And I don't know if that's what y'all are doing with the simple way, but I'm kind of curious what an intentional community looks like. Yeah, man, we, we were really inspired by the early church, you know, in the book of Acts, where it says they, you know, all when the Holy Spirit fell on them, they shared everything in common. None of them claimed any of their possessions were their own. And it says there were no needy persons among them. You know, the offerings were put at the feet of the apostles and shared. So this uh, idea really caught us. And, and um, we got a house, some of my college friends and I, we pulled our money together and bought a house. And now we've uh, fixed up about a dozen abandoned properties, been building a little village and got, you know, community gardens and uh, all kinds of things that we're doing in the neighborhood. And and in one sense, there's another community, Koinonia Farm down in Georgia, where Clarence Jordan, the founder there, he said, our communities are demonstration plots for the kingdom. We want to give people a little glimpse of the kingdom, you know, and, and a taste of heaven on earth. So that's what we're aspiring to do. We don't always live up to that, but you know, that's what we're trying to figure out what, what, what is God's dream look like um, on our block in our city and God's dreams, not for last, last year in the pandemic, 500 lives were lost in Philadelphia to gun violence, 41,000 across the country. I mean, over a hundred a day. And um, that's not God's dream, you know? So how can we, so, so we're, doing the work of hospitality. You know, we've got a recovery community that's helping folks with addiction. We've got kind of hitting it all, on all fronts. And particularly with gun violence, man, we just saw too many people killed in our neighborhood. And I really resonated with Martin Luther King's words. And he said, we're all called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, Maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho, you know, and do something about what's landing people in the ditch to begin with. So that's where, you know, some of our um, kind of political change that we hope for and advocate for comes out of that place, you know, and that proximity to the struggle. And uh, so we're, we're, you know, working on immigration. We're working on gun violence, ending the death penalty. All these things are really intersectional. And, um, that's why one of the one of my friends, Alexia Salvatierra, she says privilege is being able to care uh, to choose what issues you care about and what issues you don't care about. You know, and I think in some ways, too, like whether we vote or not, um, sometimes our privilege affects that. You know, like if we um, there, there are a lot of folks that suffer from uh, the way that we engage or choose not to engage on some of these issues. So. That's why I think we got to keep coming back to Jesus and keep coming back to the the, the folks whose lives are most vulnerable uh, based on like government policies and say, we are with them. If you hurt them, you hurt Jesus and we're with them. Good stuff, man. So is there, are these these uh, communities, are they in Pennsylvania? And you said you mentioned one in Georgia. Is that like an offshoot of what y'all are doing in Pennsylvania or is it? There's a network. I mean, there's there's intentional communities around the country and some are more politically engaged. Some are more anarchistic. Uh, I mean, all of us have gone to jail. You know, we went to jail resisting <laughs> the, the war in Iraq. We've gone to jail fighting anti-homeless policies. Some of our friends went to jail for putting water in the desert for immigrants. They were charged with felony charges, you know. And so, that you know, that's where we got a we got a good whole 
history of Christianity that's about the good trouble John Lewis talked about, right? It's about the the kind of, uh, uh, you know, Dr. King, when he said, when I first went to jail, I was, a uh, you know, a little upset, but then I looked at history and what saw what good company I have, you know, the holy troublemakers. <laughs> so, you know, I think we, 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 we want to uh, obey the good laws and disobey the bad laws, you know, and change them by exposing, you know, how crazy they are. So uh, we, we believe in the rich tradition of civil disobedience. And uh, I've written, you know, quite a bit about that. But I guess we've gone to I've probably gone to jail 30 times or so. And good grief. I went I went like four times during the Trump administration. So um, I was just tell my friends it might be time to go down the border again and surround one of those detention centers and you know, on, get on our knees and go to jail <laughs> under Biden, too. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm nonpartisan on my civil disobedience and going to jail, man. So, yeah. I'm a big, I'm a huge fan of civil disobedience. That's what people, because people tend to tend to think that we step back and we're not doing anything. I was like, no, I think we ought to be disobedient. And I, it reminds me of a, a placemat that I saw on Facebook the other day. It looked like somebody crocheted it and it had a little duck up in the corner. And it said, I think I'm just going to cause trouble on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of the good, the, the good theology that we have, we talk about revolutionary subordination. You know, one of the ways that we're subordinate to the state is by being willing to expose injustice by suffering the consequences of exposing it, you know? And I think, you know, no one did that better than civil rights movement. But when when we went to Iraq, we took medication to the Iraqi hospitals and it was a violation of the sanctions. And, And some of us faced more than 12 years in prison for taking medicine to Iraq. And so we always argue, you know, our faith, no matter, you know, when, when we're brought to trial. So we and we usually win. So um, some of the ways that we change bad laws is by uh, by exposing them. And one of the ways that we do that civil disobedience. So uh, may, maybe we'll go to jail together sometime, bro. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a plan. <laughs> Let me know. So I was going to ask you, are you guys doing anything as far as like what's going on in Yemen? Because it's been a, a soft spot for me that. The stuff I've heard on Scott Horton's show, and I, I was listening to him last night, they've got, they're talking now with the Saudi blockade that's being backed by the United States government. They're, they're talking about just in children alone, 400,000 Yemeni children dying this year alone Yeah, from famine. Are you guys doing anything to work on that as well? Or I, I've got a lot of friends that I collaborate with that are, I've not been to Yemen, but I've been to Afghanistan. Um and I've been to Iraq twice. And there's some great folks, you know, with, uh, like preemptive love and Christian peacemaker teams and others that uh, I think are doing a lot of good work. But um, I'd love to get over there sometime. I'm really concerned about it. And it's just, you know, again, this is not a partisan thing. I mean, we saw 26,000 bombs dropped during 2016 when uh, Obama was president, you know, and we, 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 we still see, you know, a rising military budget. And I think of those words of Dr. King, you know, a country that spends more money on, on military defense and on programs of social uplift is approaching uh, spiritual death. So I, I think we, we got to do better, man. And um, I agree. So as, as Jesus blessed the peacemakers, yes, sir. we, uh, it's time, man. So Good to talk with you, man. All right, buddy. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you coming on. When you get that book finished, let me know and I'll grab it and we'll we'll have you back on to talk about it. Cool, man. Appreciate you. Keep at it, man. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, 
If you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. Thank you.